Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Roy Camphausen. When Lieutenant Colonel Roy Camphausen retired from the U.S. Army, he could look back on a career spent studying, observing, and influencing the Chinese People's Liberation Army, also known as the PLA. At a time when alarm bells are ringing in Washington and other capitals about PLA capabilities and assertiveness in the region, Lieutenant Colonel Camphausen provides helpful context and backstory on the world's largest standing army. He was on the ground in Beijing and closely involved in policymaking during times of U.S.-China tension between the two countries and the two militaries. One of the most prominent episodes from the 1990s was when a U.S. warplane mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, killing three Chinese embassy staff. Thousands of Chinese students protested the Belgrade bombing by chanting slogans and throwing rocks at the U.S. embassy in Beijing. Here's some of what President Bill Clinton said to reporters in 1999 just after the U.S. realized the mistaken bombing. And if you listen closely, you can hear how a Chinese audience might not see this as an unmitigated apology. Unfortunately, the Chinese embassy was inadvertently damaged and people lost their lives and others have been injured. It was a tragic mistake. And I want to offer uh, my sincere regret and my condolences to both the leaders and the people of China. Having said that, let me also remind you that uh, it is clear that we're doing everything we can to avoid innocent civilian casualties. In his discussion with me, Kamphausen talks about his family history with China, how the U.S. military has interacted with Chinese counterparts for the last two decades, and his entrepreneurial role in highlighting Chinese intellectual property theft, an issue which has become the centerpiece for current U.S.-China trade friction. Lieutenant Colonel Roy Kamphausen, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, great to see you. Thank you, James. Good to be here. Um, I wanted to get started by how you got interested in China and started working on China in the first place. Um, <clears throat> can you just talk about the U.S. Army FAO program, what it is, sure. what you're supposed to do, and how, how you got involved? So I was a career Army officer, and the Army has a terrific program for officers mid-career, which allows them to, you might say, take uh, a step away from the operational track and uh, do a deep dive on regional or country studies. So they send you to the Defense Language Institute for uh, intensive language, then to graduate school. And so you went to the Defense Language Institute. I went to the Defense Language Institute. on the hardship post of? Monterey, California. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, went to, to felt okay about that because I came from Fort Hood, Texas. So two and a half years at Fort Hood, uh, followed by not quite a year in Monterey. Um, and you did Mandarin in Monterey. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, graduate school, Columbia University in New York. And then the third part of the training process was a year plus in your country. Uh, in my case, China in the second class to have lived and studied in Beijing 
and uh, we did advanced language study at, at uh, Capital Normal University and then traveled throughout the country and the region. And what year but was that? But that was really, and this is the part that's interesting, at least from my personal perspective, is my grandfather had lived in China uh, for 28 years, and my father was born in Changsha. So in many respects, although I had never been, there was this kind of, it was sort of in my genes, you might say, with the first time we went to Beijing. Wow, and so did when you were offered an opportunity to do something like this foreign area officers program you chose Chinese because of that family background or that that was like certainly good? a big part of it the other part was this is the late 1980s um, it, the wall had not yet fallen the Soviet Union had not yet uh, gone away but my own view was that that this there was a change was coming mm. and that to to have a specialization on a region other than the Soviet Union would be useful, helpful, and and also had a really high language aptitude score, which meant I was going to have to, they were going to send me to a hard language. So, so it was going to be Arabic or Russian or Chinese. Or Korean, or maybe. Korean or, so mm-hmm. uh, then my family history came into play, and so Chinese was a, a natural choice. And then. tell me about your, your, why was your family living in China at that time? My grandfather was a German. He was a missionary uh, to southern China for about 28 years from early 1920s till just after the end of the Second World War. My father, along with his six brothers and uh, sisters, was born in China. And then after the war, they emigrated to the U.S. And Lutheran? What was the denomination? They were a a non-state church affiliated, what we today call a parachurch organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they... That, that, that was the auspices that they were there under. Oh. And so when you were growing up, was that a big part of your family? It's a huge part. Mm-hmm. My father, my grandfather would uh, tell us the mag- amazing stories of when they were in China. And uh, because they were in Southern China, they were in a part of the country that um, was, many of the people were fleeing from the uh, Japanese military invasion. My grandfather had been there so long that even though he was a citizen of an Axis power, they were granted an internal Guomindang passport. I have a copy of my father's wow. at home. Uh-huh. And so they were allowed to flee. They were not interned as other German citizens were and eventually made their way to Chongqing where they spent the last couple years of the war. And amazingly, my grandfather actually served as the de facto chaplain for the American forces that were stationed near Chongqing because there weren't any other ministers nearby. Now, when I knew him 40 years later, uh, I'm sorry, 30 years later, his English was terrible at that point. I can't imagine how, and that was after having spent nearly 30 years in the U.S., I can't imagine how bad it was in those days. But uh, in any case, he was he was the guy on the ground. I was going to ask, so he had German, he, must, he supposed to spoke some, some dialect of Chinese? And English, your grandfather? Yeah. I have uh, some tapes of him speaking Chinese. The legend is that his Chinese was great. What I heard on the tapes was <laughs> him after having been in the U.S. US for some time. So I don't know. I can't, can't judge how good it was. Wow, incredible. So moving a little bit to uh, this, uh, this closer part of this century. Um, so then you uh, spent a year studying in Beijing. What year was that? From... Uh, 1995 to 1996. And as a student, what are you supposed to be doing uh, 
in Beijing in addition to language study? The defense attache was a person who had spent a lot of time in greater China. And his principal guidance to us was, this is your one chance to understand China from the grassroots up. If you come back in a, in a, in a capacity representing the country, working in the embassy, you, your, your interactions will all be at the high level, the political level, you know, minister, national defense level. This is your chance to understand China from the, from the ground up and allow that to shape and inform how you interact with senior American leaders who don't have that experience. So use that experience to be useful to policymakers later. Then you uh, ended up coming back to the embassy as the assistant army attache, and then you were a little bit less free to kind of travel around, and you, you had the kind of day-to-day -day work of working at the embassy. <clears throat> Could you just describe the role of an army attache at an embassy and what your position is and what you're supposed to be doing with sure. Chinese counterparts? Two principal functions uh, that any military attache has anywhere in the world. The first is to represent your military to your host country's military and government and people. Uh, and so everything about the United States Army that we wanted to embody for the PLA and for the Chinese people, we were uh, intended to, 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 to accomplish. Um, that has both official dimensions to it uh, when you escort delegations, either American delegations to China or Chinese to the U.S., but also had informal ones. Um, I had the privilege to be the speaker at the opening of a museum in Chongqing dedicated to American forces that had operated in that area. Uh, and it was, a, it was um, a part of or an enlargement to the Stillwell Museum, uh, uh, General Stillwell, who had been the American commander of forces in China. And that was a chance. There was really not much official interaction. That was very much a, a public interaction. But I was the face of the United States Army to the Chinese people at that event. That's one part. The second is, uh, by convention, uh, embassy officers are to observe and report. And your job then, in concert with representing your own military, is to understand the developments, the changes that are taking place within your host country's military and to share those back with your colleagues in Washington. And so this is the late 90s. What was happening in the People's Liberation Army at that time? What were you watching? It's a time of great change. 1999 was a, a point in time in which a number of various serious reforms were initiated. Um, the military academy system, the Chinese had a Russian-style system, over 100 academies, really an iron rice bowl kind of situation. They determined it was both inefficient and costly. And so they downsized by more than a third over the course of a couple year period. Very important change. They also instituted a Chinese uh, our reserve officer training corps style system, very, very comparable to our own. And I actually brought a delegation to the US that examined how we did such a system. Uh, I thought I was, I was a big fan of that development because uh, civilian education in China, especially at that point in time, was a more liberalizing experience for a young person than even one in the West. 
And then so I thought that might potentially pay long-term dividends. Uh, but then they also significantly reformed their personnel system more broadly, uh, established a non-commissional officer program, uh, revised the uh, Military Service Act, and so forth. So it was a time of great change. Some new systems were being, some equipment was being fielded, which, um, which uh, was interesting to pay attention to as well. But that took place within the context of some interesting bilateral developments, right? Earlier, when, we, when we, I had been there um, in 95, 96, we had the cross-strait crisis. And you'll, you've talked with others who were intimately a part of that, I'm sure. But that was a, that was a tough moment uh, for how, the bilateral relationship. How was it as an Army officer on the ground as a student during that time? What did you experience? I'll never forget to walking the streets of Shanghai and talking with a person on the street outside of the Shanghai Stock Exchange who said, why does the United States want to go to war with China? This is the summer of 1995, so just after the first missile shots in August. Uh, and I was dumbfounded by the question. Obviously, it was a function of the, the, the propaganda that was being promulgated domestically and and struggled to come up with an answer of, you know, how do you how do you deny the negative? Um, and so that was a tough period. The, the policy response, the U.S. policy response to that series of events was to deter through robust engagement. And so once our bilateral relationship stabilized a bit, then what the U.S. policy did was to bring as many senior PLA officers to the United States and show and demonstrate the high-tech capabilities of the U.S. in hopes that um, this would be a deterrent to China's top military leaders. The American analytical response, which I've been a part of since I retired from the Army, was to solely think about um, China as a growing military threat. And so we had a divergence between what the analytical community, even outside of government, was looking at and what the policy response was. And that really came to a head during the early uh, Rumsfeld years when later in my career I went to the Pentagon. But we'll talk about that we, in a we moment. We'll talk about um, This was t when you were there in 1999, 10 years after Tiananmen, in which the PLA was called upon to um, <clears throat> suppress demonstrators and support the party. Uh, as a uniform army attache, did that enter in at all in your conversations, in your interactions with PLA officers that you were dealing with? It was the 800-pound uh, the gorilla in the room. Um, one of my colleagues in the field, also retired military attache, Dennis Blasco, has written about the ghosts of Tiananmen. And, I, and they were very much present and looming in any bilateral interaction. You know, 1999, which was the 10-year anniversary was a time of terrible insecurity for the, for the Chinese leadership. Um, you may recall Falun Gong surrounded Zhongnanhai on April 10th with uh, 10,000 people on no notice. Um, in July, Li Donghui gave the famous Guo Yu Guo speech. Uh, we had the 10th anniversary of Tiananmen in June. Zhu Rongji came to the U.S., had a great deal for WTO accession in the Clinton administration. The president himself 
couldn't say yes to a good deal. And so the Chinese really were wondering, does the United States fundamentally oppose our rise? And it was, so it was a great time of great uh, uncertainty on their part. And a huge part of that was Tiananmen. You may recall, uh, they put a fence around the center of Tiananmen Square and attempted to grow grass. Uh, and it was such a transparent effort to just pre- prevent there being a space where a lot of people could could uh, could assemble in one at one point. Are you allowed to wear your army uniforms when you're stationed in Beijing at the embassy for all of the events that you go to as a representative of the United States? Uh, there's no kind of restrictions on your. No, in fact, it's the expectation is that you will. When I first arrived as an attaché in June of 1998, it was just before President Clinton came to China on his historic visit. You may recall that was the longest, is the longest that a sitting American president has spent in any one country during his presidency. I think it was nine days. Uh, and that was really a high point of bilateral relations, so much so that even just walking the streets, I wore my, wore my uniform. Uh, and that changed rather dramatically what was the reaction? Ten months later, uh, <clears throat> Belgrade bombing. What was the reaction you got just for that? Very positive. Yeah. Very positive. Uh, and in the southwest of China, where there's still a lot of residual goodwill to American military people, even more positive. So I, I cut you off as you were talking about uh, the, the things that went south in late 1999 and 2001, the Belgrade bombing and the EP3 incident, two things that I think kind of tested the U.S.-China relationship. Um, can you just talk about, I guess, the first of those, the, um, the Belgrade bombing, and what, what your what your role was and what you were doing at that time? Well, in the run-up to May 8, 1999, uh, the, the, the Chinese system and the PLA were, were deeply oppositional to the air war over Kosovo uh, for its own sake and also because they sensed the precedent that um, such a non-sanctioned uh, military operation could well be directed against them in some future context. And, and the purpose was, at the time, the rationale of the United States said was to do what? What was the U.S. looking to do in, in Kosovo? What was the, the reason for the air war? Well, we were trying to affect change on the ground by use of air power. And that's uh, a fraught proposition in any circumstance. And so it wasn't particularly effective uh, um, in terms of achieving our policy objectives or change on the ground. Um, And so in the event, uh, the Chinese embassy was struck by uh, JDAM missiles fired from an American F-16 under the command of NATO. And uh, three embassy officials were killed. Um, we later learned that they were very likely Ministry of State Security officers. And so in our interactions with Chinese counterparts, they judged this was an intentional act, one missile for one person, which as you, you know, if you deconstruct that with the benefit of 20 years hindsight, it seems ludicrous. But how else do you explain from the Chinese perspective how the most advanced military in the world can hit uh, the embassy, the sovereign territory of um, a third-party country that's not involved in the conflict. It was, as 
we said at the time, uh, it's unimaginable. It's un- you can't even comprehend how such a thing could happen. Um, and so the process of you know, moving forward after that was, was quite difficult. Um, in the end, the judgment by the Chinese military writ large, and I believe it's still held today, is that there was a rogue cabal of Air Force targeting officers and CIA officials who intentionally wanted to strike China as a means of holding them down or as retribution for perhaps under under the table support for various parties in the in the conflict that might have been in opposition to the US and they judged that they had to uh, attribute the responsibility below the level of the president because we were in the process of negotiating a WTO agreement. And you could hardly strike a bilateral WTO accession deal with the United States with the very person who had authorized. So they had to at- attribute it to a level lower than that. And at the time, I remember being so befuddled at this explanation, right? Because responsibility is ultimately at the level of the highest person involved. And so you, even if the president hadn't ordered it, which he did not, you can hardly say he's without any responsibility. And it spoke to me more about the nature of uh, the, the Chinese system than it did about American intent. But it's still, from the perspective of Chinese security leaders, um, unexplainable even today. So to the next incident, uh, the EP3 incident when um, U.S. and Chinese planes collide off Hainan Island and the Chinese plane is lost and the pilot is lost and the U.S. plane makes an emergency landing. Uh, That was your final few months, is that right, at the embassy? Right. What do you recall about what the U.S. goals were and how how was that interaction with the PLA? This was something that involved a PLA aircraft and uh, clearly a U.S. Uh, Army, uh, U.S. Uh, Navy reconnaissance plane. Well, uh, nowhere near the level of regret, right? This was not an action resulting in the in the death of a Chinese pilot that was initiated by the U.S. Um, the facts are that the United States, for a very long period of time, not just off of China, but globally, conducts reconnaissance uh, in the international air and maritime space as as judged by the UN Convention on Law of the Sea. Uh, the Chinese have long told us they don't like this. It's an unfriendly act between countries that are not at war and cooperating on so many levels. And the argument that the increased transparency from the intelligence gained from such efforts actually lent itself to stability in bilateral relations was lost on them, as you might imagine. So there had been a period of some time. There had been a ramp up to this, starting as late, as early as the end of 2000. And then in the early first three months of 2001, there were demarches. The the Chinese military would take, find the opportunity during visits or when we had the, um, military maritime consultative agreement talks, which were already in place from 1998, they would say, this is wrong. It's got to stop. Um, it hurts our national interests. And and so fundamentally, we, and it's not yet resolved today, we have uh, two goals that are incompatible. 
we have the American need and desire to operate wherever the UN Convention on the Law of Sea allows, and the Chinese intent to push that activity as far from the Chinese coast as they can. So that's the underpinning. Uh, you know, the crashing of a jet, Chinese jet fighter, into a propeller-driven uh, EP-3 aircraft. You know, the physics of it are such that you cannot blame the slower aircraft for the collision. And there was uh, a fair amount of precedent, including of the very pilot involved in hot dogging or, or showboating. Um, and uh, later, a Chinese uh, chief of the PLA Navy told his American counterpart, you know, th you're, you're at fault for that as well because they watched uh, Top Gun and, and so they judged that that's what they've got to be. Our pilots feel like they... They need to be there, the Chinese version of top. So it's your fault in that case as well. It's Hollywood's fault for everything. Yeah. But James, think about it. I mean, the guy, the pilot's name was Wang Wei. I mean, a homophone for wrong way, right? He just, he was doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's tragic that he lost his life, but it was of his own doing. The miracle is that the Americans weren't killed as well. Um, there's both good fortune Right, the the stabilizer cable snapped, but it locked in a position that allowed the pilot to land the aircraft. Um, if the 24 Americans had lost their lives as well, we'd be in a much different circumstance. That they were detained um, for 11 days and ultimately released on Good Friday, um, uh, an American religious holiday or a Western religious holiday. Uh, is you know its own internal story, and there's one funny thing about it. Um, there's a charter aircraft that flew from Guam to Hainan to pick up the crew once the, the negotiations for their release were complete, and the manifest said Hainan Republic of China, and on that basis, the local official said, "I cannot release the crew. There is no such place as Hainan Republic of China." And the American defense attache at the time, uh, Brigadier General Neil Seelock, said, so if I correct that, and he grabbed a Sharpie, if I put People's Republic, is that going to satisfy? There is a place called Hainan Island, People's Republic of China. And so he did it. And we were watching this on TV. We watched him run up and down the stairs into the cockpit of the plane. And, and when he got home later that night, we asked him what was going on. And he shared the story that he Simply handwriting in People's Republic of China is what got the plane to be able that, to take that off. That did the trick. Yeah. After that time, you came back to Washington in <clears throat> 2001, that summer. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then you went to the Joint Staff? I started in the Joint Staff and worked there for two years for and, the chairman. And what was that job like? Uh, it's a fantastic job. Uh, the future generals and admirals of the U.S. military... Uh, the vast majority of them spend time working in joint staff strategic plans and policy. So it was a chance to meet really exceptional officers from from the other services, um, many of whom maybe were not specialists in a region or country, but uh, brought really extraordinary operational experience. So it was a wonderful professional experience. Um, the aftermath of the EP3 crisis, though, which occurred at the very beginning of the George W. Bush administration and the, the leadership of then 
Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, uh, caused a reevaluation. The, the Bush administration leaders came in already skeptical of the program of uh, robust engagement. They thought it had not paid off. And they were looking to scale back the amount of contact between the two, military, two militaries. And what was their argument of, that it didn't pay off? That the we didn't get to see cool whiz-bang Chinese stuff and the Chinese got to see amazing technology on our side or that the, the somehow our <clears throat> appreciation for what was happening in the PLA was kind of clouded? What, what was their kind of main argument for why I it didn't the, work? I think the main argument is that there was a disparity or a, um, an inconsistency or uh, an imbalance between the access that we had when we'd visit China and the access that the Chinese would have. The access the Chinese had was, the greater access was intentional. We, at least during the, the latter part of the, the Clinton years, we were deterring by showing how costly a conflict with the United States would be. The Rumsfeld administration said, we are inadvertently benefiting Chinese modernization program by showing them what we've got. And there's merit to that argument as well. And in fact, the younger officers, uh, so the one stars during the period of robust deterrence, saw their leaders being deterred by the American systems, and they found themselves motivated to rapidly modernize so they would be in a better position to compete. And so both phenomena were true, actually. Um, so you're on the Joint Staff. I, I uh, want to hear about that that trip, but uh, just keeping your time at the Joint Staff. Um, what was your main job? Are you, you were covering East Asia. You were covering China. I was exclusively working on China and Taiwan. And uh, so all policy dimensions related to our military relationship with them. And the chairman of the – you know, you work for the chairman. The chairman's job is the principal military advisor to the president and the secretary of defense. And, uh, and so in that respect, I was, uh, 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 you know, the – very involved with our then chairman, Dick Myers. Now, General Myers, Air Force General, uh, was as knowledgeable about East Asia as almost any senior leader I've ever known. In the 70s, he had flown missions out of Taiwan against Vietnam. He had been in the Pacific. He'd been in Alaska. He'd been in Japan. So he was a, a treasure to work for because he knew so much. And his, I thought his instincts about... Um, especially our bilateral relationship with, with the Chinese were, were really spot on. So you had mentioned that under Rumsfeld there was a scaling back of the kind of military-to-military -military contact, and under the National Defense Authorization Act of 2000, there's specific legislation around it. How did that affect you in the joint staff in terms of just kind of planning for what the next year would be for interacting with the PLA? Well, it became more of a challenge. We, the rationale for for why you conduct military-to-military -military exchanges. And the Joint Staff was was central in managing the proposed activities of the services, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Um, so you ha we had to be both be true to the policy direction because that was, you know, we, we, we didn't have a separate policy. The chairman wasn't operating with different, hadn't given different directions than the secretary had. But we also had to, Keep in mind the the guidance of the senior military leaders, which is, by and large, every senior person I've ever interacted with says, you hold your friends close and you hold your adversaries closer. And if you lose contact, 
things will happen that you wish you'd known about and you have less time to be able to react. And so senior uniform types tend to support engagement, not because they have some kumbaya sense that uh, we can just all be friends, but rather it's how you stay in contact with your potential adversary and you will gain insights from that that will make you better prepared for whatever may come. And so after that, then you went to another part of the joint staff, is that right? No, I stayed, uh, I was there for two years and then went to work for OSD policy directly. And it was at the Office of the Secretary of Defense's office that you worked on the visit of the Chinese Minister of National Defense? Yes. And who was that? It was uh, Cao Gongchuan. Another interesting story, because in the 1980s, you may recall, or our listeners may recall, we had a close military relationship. This is pre-Tiananmen. We had four uh, programs in which we were selling or making available equipment or munitions to the Chinese military. One of them was uh, a, an artillery um, acquisition radar called the Firefinder Radar. General Tao, as a two-star, had been managing that program on the Chinese side and had frequently come to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, the, the home of uh, American artillery, to interact with his American counterparts. And that, a program, that program, like all others, ended abruptly uh, in, uh, just after Tiananmen when George H.W. Bush uh, instituted the Tiananmen sanctions. But it spoke to uh, the even in that moment to the longevity of our relationship, even within the span of, at that point, only 15 years. It's really had swung between two ends of the continuum. So when he came here, um, how did he hold himself up as someone who was knowledgeable about the United States and um, saw building military to military ties as an important part of his personal job? Or was he more standoffish uh, and concerned about not saying the wrong thing? I was very impressed with his level of preparation. So Secretary Rumsfeld had the reputation within the American armed forces of being very tough on his generals. And it was called uh, wire brushing. If, if he didn't like where you were going, it could be a very unpleasant interaction. And clearly, General Tao knew that I had, he had to come with a very strong set of, uh, of, of goals for his meeting with the secretary and, and to be very direct in how he accomplished it. So I was very impressed. We had an hour and a half lunch meeting. Uh, he didn't eat the whole time. He, he had issues that he wanted to raise, and he understood that he had to be strong. And the secretary tried to throw him off by talking about the EP3. And then later by talking about how the Taiwan Room in the Great Hall of the People depicts amphibious invasions of the island. Uh, and the Chinese general, General Tao, came back and said, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, uh, those are not contemporary images. The friezes are really relates to the Ming uh, invasion of Taiwan in the 17th century. Rumsfeld said, uh, no, those are modern equipment. That was modern missilery. Uh, I know it when I see it. Chinese general said, you must have been mistaken. And so the meeting was, this is at the very outset. It's really escalating. And I thought, this lunch may end very quickly. Uh, there was one more exchange. And then General Tsao said to Secretary Rumsfeld, well, I invite you to come to China. 
And when you come, I will host you to a meeting in the Taiwan Room of the Great Hall of the People. And I promise you there will be no freezes, no pictures, no images of an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. And the room broke up because the Chinese were all imagining, we'll show him. There's only eight on either side. And the Americans are all imagining the PLA privates the night before taking down the pictures and putting up, you know, Shan Shui Hua of, uh, of somewhere in Shanxi or something. And as a consequence, it actually became a quite productive discussion thereafter, so much so that after the meeting, the secretary grabbed his hand and walked him down to, the office, to his personal office and showed him around. And under his the desk, the table protector in the in the center of his room, he had that famous image of the Korean Peninsula, where everything south of uh, of the DMZ is a light at night, and everything north is dark. And his point was, we got to do something. And so, um, I was impressed with the level of preparation of the Chinese general, and that led to a reasonably productive discussion. I, I want to talk about your uh, time doing. Uh, think tank projects, uh, but uh, I just had a, one kind of final question, and if you have any comments on your, on your joint staff time or your OSD time. Shung um, Kai is a person who uh, spent a lot of time interacting with Americans and uh, was a kind of point person for the PLA in dealing with the United States. Uh, there's kind of different models of how different Chinese organizations deal with the United States. There's the kind of American handler type, and that's what I'm suggesting Xiong Kai made of himself or was kind of asked to do that. And then there are folks who are kind of don't fall into that trap and kind of have their regular jobs and don't see handling foreigners as their main goal. Um, you must have dealt with Xiong Kai over the years and kind of yes. seen that sort of um, approach. Do you think that's effective from the Chinese point of view? And then also, I guess, from the American point of view, is it helpful to have the kind of go-to one person on the Chinese side to problem solve? Or does it rather just bottleneck it all in this one person and we put too much on that person's shoulders? I think there's there's strengths to it, but there's also downsides as well. The strengths are you know, such a level of continuity that um, you could be confident that he knew the story, even if his rendition of it uh, in his interactions with his American counterparts wasn't as consistent as to our own memories of what might have taken place. But he had a stranglehold on both the Chinese intelligence and the Chinese military foreign policy system. And that served a disservice to the Chinese Chinese leaders, right? In the aftermath of the Belgrade bombing, um, he attributed to American he attributed the accident to American intent. And that then being accepted by the top leaders limited the options in response, right? They could hardly have any sort of accommodating, understanding reaction to an event that was they had accepted as being intentional. And so his stranglehold, Xiong's personal stranglehold on the information flow of a military event led to uh, less than great options on on the part of the top political leadership in China. Um, subsequently, I think the Chinese leaders judged that they didn't want to repeat that approach. And so subsequent leaders 
were in the position for not as long, and sometimes they were leaders who then took on higher level operational experience. So a good example is is Ma Xiaotian, Air Force General, later after he was Deputy Chief of Staff uh, for Intelligence and Foreign Affairs. Later he became the Chief of the PLA Air Force. And so in that respect, they have begun to adopt a model that's more akin to how the U.S. does it, which is your your policy folks also have a range of operational experiences as well. Hmm. Um, well, I'd like to talk a little about your time at uh, National Bureau of Asian Research um, and about the um, PLA conference, just as an example of the sort of work you've <clears throat> done. When you joined the Army and then you became a foreign area officer, um, this is kind of pre-internet or internet was just kind of taking off at the time. The knowledge of the PLA was pretty limited. I mean, there weren't that many people who knew much about the People's Liberation Army, and they were probably all, you know, most of them were within different parts of the U.S. government. Um, after uh, 20 plus years now, there's actually a fair amount of information that's in the public domain, that's published reports. Part of it's the DOD military power report. Part of it is other think tank reports. Um, can you just kind of think back about that level of knowledge when you started about what was known about the PLA to where we are today and, and maybe your role in that diffusion of knowledge so that more people have a good idea of what's happening in, in the PLA? Well, there's certainly the technological piece to it that you've talked about, right? The flow of information was not, especially outside of the government, was not as easy. But there's also the the fact that the Chinese military just didn't matter very much in in a global sense, even a regional sense. Um, when we took over the partnership, uh, the non-governmental side of the partnership with the Army War College on this annual PLA conference in 2005, the, the field of PLA watchers was still very much a kind of cottage industry, very niche uh, group of folks, specialized, generally people that had experience very much like my own, spent time as an attache and then time in government. Uh, it, this was not a topic that was widely studied in academic programs across the country, uh, and mostly because it just didn't matter. And what has changed really in the last 15 years is, is a, a much greater sense that what China does and also what the Chinese military does on a regional and global sense really is consequential. Um, and so as a natural byproduct of both better information flow and um, the fact that what you're studying really it matters, we've seen an explosion of interest, um, and it's well beyond simply the U.S. government, its analytical and policy folks. We see uh, Ph.D. Uh, candidates writing dissertations that are as sophisticated as you can possibly imagine about very detailed pieces of not just Chinese broader security strategy and 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 strategic intent but also about the military's role in that and so it's a, a very much becoming much more sophisticated um, set of non-governmental specialists who are looking at the topics so we're fortunate that we get to to bring them in and provide a setting, a high trust setting in which you can have people from academia, from think tanks, from consultant groups, from intelligence organizations, from policy groups, and in an unclassified setting, grapple with the big issues of the day. Um, 
we think at NBR there's great value in having government specialists interact with private citizens. Um, it both tempers their judgments, it provides nuance and insights in ways that uh, ultimately make their decision-making better, we believe. We have a chair in National Security Studies at NBR, NBR called the Shalikashvili Chair, named for General John Shalikashvili, 13th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, moved to the Seattle area when he retired uh, and joined NBR's board, and he was adamant on this point. He said, government leaders are awash in classified information. I suspect it's even worse now. What they don't have is perspective or what they really need. And they have their personal experience and judgment. But this is, we can be valuable and useful to decision makers by providing perspective. And oftentimes that comes from outside of the system. Wow. Um, I want to say actually end with work that you did for the IP Commission because it must have been quite gratifying to see a U.S. administration take the work that you all did on the IP Commission and really put it front and center for how they saw the need to confront China on IP practices. Can you just talk a little bit about the IP Commission and your role in it and what, what it sure. was designed to do? Well, the IP Commission is a private, independent entity established and funded by NBR to look at the theft of American intellectual property. It was actually begun in 2012. Our initial co-chairs were Governor John Huntsman, who had been our ambassador to China and, and one of America's leading public policy China hands. Also Deputy United States Trade Representative. In an earlier iteration, and, and, and Ambassador to Singapore, to Singapore yeah. and uh, currently Ambassador to Russia. And his counterpart was Admiral Dennis Blair, who had been the last command, Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Pacific Command and had also been a Director of National Intelligence for President Obama. And they came together and said, we think there is an issue that threatens the health of our bilateral relationship, and it is largely unappreciated by American leaders. We would like to shed light on this topic. We would like to do robust research. We'd like to think through very uh, deep policy rep recommendations that an administration ought to consider. So we did a year of informal hearings. We commissioned research. We uh, plumbed the depths of what was available internationally on the topics. And I served as Deputy Director and Chief of Staff of the Commission, so I was really leading that, that research effort. And we ultimately came out with a report in May 2013 that said uh, China is the principal um, illicit appropriator of American intellectual property globally. Russia's doing some. Uh, there are other smaller players in, in niche fields, but across the board, no matter how you measure it, uh, between 60 and 75 percent of global IP theft of American IP is can be attributed to China. So then what do you do about it? And the commission said, fundamentally, you have to change the cost-benefit calculus of the bad actors. 
and even if you set aside the question of whether it's state-sponsored or not, whoever is doing the misappropriation has to feel the pain. And then the commission said, so what do we have as leverage? And they judged the American market and the American financial system were points of leverage that could be used against the bad actors. Um, not in a blunt way, but in a, you think of them as a scalpel, right? So very sharp, um, tailored to the, the specific instances or entities. Unbelievably, uh, when we had first begun, Governor Huntsman said, uh, for this to matter, for our work to count for anything, it has to be, be elevated to, to one of the top three policy issues of the Obama administration. And you know, we started, we thought, how could that possibly, IP? No one knows what the acronym IP stands for. Now, looking back seven years later, everyone knows what IP, I mean, my neighbors talk to me about IP theft. Uh, and so the, the efforts were very successful at that level, but they were also successful at getting the Obama administration, President Obama himself, to raise the issues with Xi Jinping, especially in their June, 2013 uh, uh, gathering at Sunnylands in California. Now, uh, there were other events that conspired against the success of the, those entreaties, right? Um, Snowden uh, had just come out, even I think the week before they gathered at Sunnylands. And so the accusation, well informed uh, accusation that, that President Obama laid with President Xi that, that Chinese entities are using cyber means to seal American IP fell a little bit on deaf ears because Xi was able to resort to some of the Snowden um, uh, uh, accusations as well. Nonetheless, that became a process uh, that really built momentum and during the early days of the Trump administration at the IP Commission, we had a lot of interaction because they were the, the, the administration wanted to understand how do you use the tools we have, some of which had lain dormant, right? The, the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act gave the president um, exceptional authorities to act unilaterally in instances where, uh, where American IP was being taken, and they hadn't been used. And so the commission was able to shed a light both on those existing authorities, but also to say these are tools that are available that leverage American strengths. Um, and I think there have been some success uh, in in raising. We're not yet at the point where we can say we've changed the Chinese approach to to technology acquisition, right? The foreign sources of technology are still very lucrative. Uh, location which Chinese entities will look. But we're at a place where the Chinese un understands the gravity with which or the, the, the depth of the, the importance of the issue to American political leaders. And that is at least a step in the right direction. I think you're also at a place where the Chinese companies invest a fair amount in R&D themselves and they see the benefit of sure. protecting IP. It hasn't, it's not for every company, and there are plenty of bad actors out there, but it's starting to change the kind of corporate landscape instead of just, oh, we need to steal this from the Germans or the Americans. Chinese companies are, are putting money forward to try to find their own technological advances and solutions. And so it's, it's the picture is starting to change, but as you say, it hasn't I, changed. I, I think you're absolutely right. 
one of the challenges with the whole made in China suite of policies. It's not just one, as you know, one 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 edict. It's a it's a really a, a suite of of industrial policies. One of the challenges, though, is a central understanding when you read those documents is uh, that the acquisition of technology by any means necessary is central to our development in these strategic industries. And so um, that is at the heart of the current challenge we have with the Chinese system. And can you, can, is there a reasonable expectation that, that as a result of this 90-day hiatus that we'll get a fundamental change in the China? No, that's not. And, and there, I think there have been some good arguments of late to, to suggest it's a pathway that has to be laid out and benchmarks along the way agreed to. Um, and an important one, and maybe not as well understood as what you highlighted, James, which is there's also a growing constituency within China that it, it serves domestic interests to be able to protect domestic IP. And ultimately, that might lead to some good as well. I think one of the troubling parts of uh, Made in China 2025 is these basically import substitution targets. Of mm. The domestic market should be X percent controlled by Chinese companies and X percent foreign companies. Market-based economies just don't need to use those targets. And so that, that's just a very troubling way to think mm. about it. Right. And uh, I understand from the kind of broader macro Chinese economic development view why their central planners have those goals. But that doesn't mean I accept them or right, that it's okay right, for them right. to do that. So I think there are, there are a number of troubling elements. And as you say, it's not just one policy. It's really a suite of different policies of preferent, preferential treatment uh, and then guidance and then uh, funds and other things that, that skew the incentive mm. at the provincial, municipal, and at the firm level for kind of what they end up doing and which um, they lose some, some guardrails as to what's important. Mm. Roy, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and um, your, your deep experience on China. It's been my pleasure, James. Thanks for the opportunity. Roy Kamphausen speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.